It is, uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. It is, it is so fun to look out and I see so many of you. I mean, it'd be, it'd be uh, I could spend like the next 30 minutes just greeting all of you. I mean, this so, I mean some of you I've known for 20, 25 years. It's, it's so strange to be back here home, you know, driving into to Plastrita Canyon. It's just, this is, for my wife and I, uh, just this is home when we're here and it's such a joy to be here. Um, my wife sends her greetings. Uh, she is uh, there back in Dubai with our four kids. Uh, so Kakoli and Ethan are our two younger ones that Adam alluded to. So 11 and seven. Then our, our two older ones, Chaya and Afsana, they send their greetings. And uh, I, I myself am, am privileged to be here to be able to visit with the Shepherds Conference. And so I'm excited to get to hear the word preached there and to join in with many friends and, uh, and colleagues over the years. Uh, my wife Karen said she's jealous because... Uh, we, our, our hearts have been here with Plasterita for so long. I mean, we, we married each other kind of right over there, you know, when it was oriented a little differently. And then you guys sent us to India in 2005. Uh, we were there for 13, 14 years. When we came off the field, uh, we were here for a couple years. And then you guys sent us out to Dubai, to the United Arab Emirates to work with a seminary there called the Gulf Theological Seminary. And so we serve with Redeemer Church of Dubai right there in the middle of the Gulf. And uh, so we are, we are just grateful for your partnership over these many years, your, your faithfulness in prayer, your faithfulness to uphold us. Um, we, we love you. And, and so I just, on behalf of my family, we just say thank you. Um, I can also say that you know, Redeemer Church is a church of many nations. Uh, we think that we have 40 or 43 different nations represented in our church. There, that we have, it's an incredibly diverse place. And I just want to see, even as we're singing songs about the gospel going out and churches being planted and, and people from every nation and tribe and tongue worshiping Jesus, well, it's happening. It is happening. And you, as, a, as like a sister church, as, as, a, as a church that partners with us and even with Redeemer Church, you get to experience the joy that one day you will meet countless names, might meet countless sisters and brothers from every place in the world. And even right now, you get to participate in that mission of what God is doing throughout the world. Now, as I mentioned, I, you know, I work for a seminary in the middle of Dubai. Dubai is a very strange city, a unique city. It's, it's strange because it's you know, right there in the middle of the desert, you know, the tallest tower in the world and uh, incredibly diverse, like 90% of the population is from other places. Uh, the, uh, but one, of the, one of the stranger things that I've noted over the last maybe two or three years since we've been there, is it's a, it's a deathless city. It's a city in which very few people die. It's an expatriate city, which means when you go there, you have to be on a work visa. You have to work and make money. And if you don't make money, then you have to leave. And so if you get sick, when you get sick, if you become weak, if you come to a certain age and can no longer work, you have to leave. And so when somebody gets sick, or falls ill, maybe to death, or or when they lose their, their work within a week, sometimes within a few days, they're on an airplane back. What that means practically is, in a church like our church, Redeemer Church, um, I asked one of the pastors there, how many funerals have you performed in the last 15 years? And he said, oh, here in Dubai, none. We have a church of 1,000 people, no funerals. I asked the, the pastor of another church, about 500 people, who's been there for 20 years. How many funerals have you performed? He said, one funeral. It's, it's a, a strange city. Um, I, I wonder though, I mean, I, I, it's maybe not as strange as we think. I mean, here even at Santa Clarita, 
there are whole populations of people who don't want to think about or talk about death. In Dubai, you start to talk about death, people get really uncomfortable. Here in Santa Clarita, you start talking about death, people get uncomfortable. Well, today, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about death. Because we as Christians don't fear death. We as Christians actually can look at death, look beyond death, and have such hope such joy at what's coming that it transforms how we live now, how we live here. And so open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter four because I want to spend a few minutes with the Apostle Paul's final words. You might say his last will and testament. And as, we, as I look at 2 Timothy chapter four, why don't you go and stand with me? I'm going to read from verse six down through, chapter tw- uh, through verse 22. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The apostle Paul writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who is sick or ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudian, all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Pray with me, Father in heaven, even as we read your word and, and I speak words to your people, I pray that you would lead us to see Jesus Christ. Lead us, Heavenly Father, to not fear death. In fact, to have such joy and hope in this life that, it, that our, our life is transformed. Gracious God, do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now in this chapter, we read some of the New Testament's most sober words. Uh, some of the saddest words you might say. The Apostle Paul is about to die. As you guys recall from, uh, from hearing the book of Acts preached, the apostle Paul, was a zeal- or the, Paul, before he was a believer, was a zealot. 
He was a fanatic. He hated Christians. He wanted to track them down, to grab them, torture them, kill them, if he could shipwreck their faith. He hated Christ. But all that changed, if you recall, when he met Jesus Christ, the risen Lord on the, on the Damascus Road, and he, he turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he turned and believed in Jesus Christ, his, his life completely changed. God called him to a ministry of preaching the gospel and of planting churches and of, of calling people to faith. And then the Apostle Paul spent the next 30 years of his life faithfully teaching about Jesus and preaching about Jesus and counseling about Jesus such that over the course of 30 years, he planted many churches throughout the Mediterranean area. The man walked 12,000, 13,000 miles, going from village to village, city to city, faithfully speaking about Jesus Christ. But he also suffered a lot. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was tortured, for the name of Jesus Christ, imprisoned several times. And as we come to him here in the book of 2 Timothy, he's now back in jail, back in prison for faithfully preaching the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Except this time, as he writes us, he's not going to be freed. He will not plant any more churches. He will not preach the gospel in any new cities. He will not escape prison. He will be tried he will be accused, he will be found guilty, and he will be executed. Likely, tradition tells us, by beheading. Paul, as he writes then this letter of 2 Timothy, wants, wants Timothy to know and all the Christians around Timothy to know what his life has been like, what his affections are, what he's characterized by, even as he sees the threshold of death getting very, very near to him. And so this morning, I want to take just a few minutes to talk about three things kind of sprinkled through the passage, the grief of death, the judgment of Jesus, and the godly affections of a dying man. If you saw there in verse six, he wrote, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He takes the image of the sacrifice, you know, the, 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 the drink offering being poured out, and as it's poured out, the water completely is completely poured out, and there's nothing left. It's gone. It's sacrificed. He says, the time of my departure, my exodus has come. It's drawn near. This passage reminds us that death is inevitable. Death is real. And yet Paul wasn't afraid to die. He, in fact, was able to write to Timothy and to the Christians around Timothy and talk very practically, very bluntly, you might say, about death. This wasn't his first time, right? If you remember back in Philippians chapter one, he was able to write the church at Philippi, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And, and which one, I'm not sure about, because I just, I love Christ so much, but then for the progress of the Philippian church, I want to remain on in the flesh. He's not afraid to talk about death and dying. Uh, you know, the reality for all, all of us is that very very shortly, sooner than any of us would care to, to think about, um, our reality is that death is coming. Scripture, in fact, tells us, warns us, that it's wise to think about, to consider carefully our mortality. If you think about uh, Psalm chapter 90, Moses uh, writes that, that great poem or that great um, 
prayer about, oh, about death, really, about his finitude. In Psalm 90, he writes, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a, the years of our life are 70, or of reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. The book of Ecclesiastes is really like an extended meditation on, on mortality and death, um, ex, or Ecclesiastes, rather. Ecclesiastes 8.8 8 says, no one has the power to retain his spirit. No one has the power of the day of his death. Hebrews 9.27, you're familiar, it is appointed, appointed for a human to die once. And after that comes judgment. Death, inescapable. And yet our world is, world is terrified of death. I don't know if you remember, but the very first city we lived in in North India was called Varanasi, the city of death. More people dying per day in Varanasi than any city in the world. And so every day we would see the bodies being taken down to the Ganges River to be cremated or burned. And we were reminded, this is a city of death. And yet even in that city, so... Um, so focused on death, nobody wanted to talk about it. It terrified them. On the opposite end, Dubai. Dubai has one of the lowest death rates in the world. Nobody wants to think about or speak about death. It's frightening, it's, it's, it's scary. And so let's not talk about it, people will say or think. And yet, we as Christians, we know, we know that our future is secure. And so though death is grievous, we can look at it, think about it, talk about it. And so I wonder this morning, have you considered recently that, that you're going to die? I don't mean to be impolite or morbid. I don't mean to like ruin your beautiful day. And yet, every gray hair, every kid, every Master's University athlete in the prime of strength, every single one of us is going to be laid low. And the day of that departure for us is, is unknown. It's unspecified, right? God has not told us the day that we're gonna die, maybe in the way that he had perhaps revealed to the apostle Paul. And so we know that we are going to die. Everyone we know is going to die. Everyone we love is going to die. And death is grievous, it is sad. We're reminded, if you remember, uh, at the grave of Lazarus, the Lord Jesus Christ had heard that Lazarus had been sick. Mary and Martha had sent to him and said, Jesus, your friend, our brother, is dying. Come. They had great faith. They knew that Jesus could heal him. And yet, Jesus didn't come. One day, two day, three days. The fourth day, Jesus comes, and now Lazarus is in the grave. And Mary and Martha both come to him, it seems separately, and almost like chidingly say, Jesus, or Lord, if you, had, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And do you remember that in, in, in John chapter 11, hearing their question and seeing the people weeping and mourning and, and considering the death of, of his friend Lazarus, it says there in John chapter 11, verse 35, that Jesus wept, the incarnate God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, seeing and smelling and hearing all the issues concerning death, begins to cry because he knows that it is sad. He knows that it is our lot to live and then to die and he sees the grief that, that we experience in that. 
And so there, perhaps just a, a few meters from the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus is weeping because we, Jesus knows death and he hates it. If you recall from 1 Corinthians 15, death is called an enemy, an enemy. And Jesus is going to destroy death. He's gonna ultimately vanquish it. We know from Hebrews chapter two, verse 14, that the reason why Jesus came is to destroy death and the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and to free us from this enslavement that we have to the fear of death. Jesus hates death. He's come to destroy it because he knows that it's grievous. It's an enemy. It's unrelenting and inescapable. How are you today thinking about your life and your death? Have you considered that you have minutes, perhaps hours, perhaps days, and then you will go and see Christ? It is awaiting all of us. Many people, they try to dull that sense of death through drink or sex or entertainment. Some people, they want to forestall it, right? They, they, want, they, they do more dieting, more exercise, more medicine or alternative medicine. Some people throw, throw platitudes around and cliches. Oh yes, you know, everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. And yet, all of us as Christians should soberly, thoughtfully consider our death because we will see our maker one day. And there's really only one answer to death, right? Only one way that you and I can look at, think about, consider our own death without, without terror, without fear, because we have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that same tomb, remember Lazarus and John chapter 11, Jesus Christ is the one who proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And all who live and believe in me shall never die, not ultimately. And so through his resurrection, you and I can speak meaningfully, thoughtfully, and consider the reality of death and, and not shake. We can actually have hope in the fear of death, hope in the face of death. And that's what I want you to have this morning in Santa Clarita. That's what I want you, Placerita, to have is hope in the face of your certain unavoidable death. Because Paul, he had hope. He had joy even in the face of death. And so we see there in 2 Timothy 1, uh, that Paul, was, Paul knew about this. He said that Jesus is the one who abolishes death and brings light and life to immortality or immortality through the gospel in this little book of 2 Timothy 1. Or here in 2 Timothy 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He was so grounded in what God had called him to do in his mission for life and he was so sure of what would happen to him in death and after death that he was content in the work that God had given him. And yet Paul's final words are they they wake us up, they, they slow us down and I hope this morning that you might slow down and that maybe today you might sit down with a friend, with a spouse, with a colleague and think about your certain unavoidable death. Now, though these words are Paul's final words to us about death, we, we recognize, we know as Christians, that death is not actually the end, 
right? That death is not the final moment of our existence, but that there's something that goes beyond death or that happens after death that gives us that hope in the face of certain death. And so let's look back at the passage to consider the judgment of Jesus Christ because after death, Jesus judges everyone. Now, Christian, you and I, we're not afraid of this judgment because we put our entire trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And so because we are aligned with and believe and trust him on that judgment after death, we have no fear at all. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says in verse eight, henceforth or now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The Apostle Paul imagines or, or talks about a kind of a courtroom scenario where there's going to be a judge on a throne giving pronouncements and judgments and yet we wanna back up for just a little bit because right now as Paul's writing, he is in jail. He is in jail and he's already had at least one court, kind of like an arraignment. Look down at verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message, the message of the gospel might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so we have here this, this description of Paul's courtroom arraignment. This is like the first set or the first part of a, of a major trial. He's already gone in before, before the court, before the, the judge. Now in this context, the judge is the Emperor Nero. Now you guys, Nero was a monstrously evil and wicked man. We have stories of him slaughtering people just for the fun of it. We have stories of him killing anybody who would stand next to the defendant in a court or in a, in a trial. And so you can understand maybe for just a moment why some of Paul's good friends, his close associates, maybe why they were afraid when Paul was arraigned before Nero, why they perhaps hid themselves. Because they know that even in an arraignment, you could be killed. Paul is, was alone in that moment and probably that's why Paul is asking Timothy to come and visit him. And that's why he says in verse nine, do your best to come to me soon because Paul was alone, he's lonely there in prison now and he, and, he, and he wants Timothy, a good, trusted, beloved friend to go and be with him in his final days or weeks before he dies. Now, Paul has such a, a hope, even as he writes to Timothy about this, about this moment after death when he will meet the judge and, and it gives us hope as well and so, for just a moment though, I wanna pause and maybe talk a little bit. So at, at the, the seminary that I work at, we teach, we teach the Bible, I teach a, a, a number of courses in mission and ministry, and one of the things I like to do every now and then is to give a pop quiz. Do you guys like quizzes? Pop quizzes? I have some university students, yeah? No? I like quizzes, so I'm gonna give you a little quiz. This is from a very old catechism, it's the first question, and the question goes like this, ready? What is our only hope or our only comfort in life and death? Right, so that's the question. What is our only hope in life and death? And so, now the answer, yes, I did this once with my kids in the, the Heidelberg Catechism, and they, were, they all just went, Jesus, duh. Yeah, but there's a little longer answer, and in a catechism, they're, they're very old, and Christians have been using them for many years, 
you know, there's a question and there's a, a response that's memorized and that's given, and it helps us to lock in certain ideas theologically. And so, in this catechism, it says, what is the only, our only hope in life and death? And the answer goes something like this, that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, to God our Savior and to Jesus Christ our Lord. And so people would, my, would memorize that and they would remember, what is my only hope, my only comfort in life and death? Ah, oh, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to God my Savior and to Jesus Christ my Lord. Well, Paul, Paul is really just reflecting those kinds of truths that the, the writers of the catechism later, later wrote up because he knew that his only hope in life and death was that he was not his own, but that he belonged, body and soul, to Christ his Lord, to Christ his judge. In fact, Paul knows who his judge is. If you, if you saw back there, he said, hence therefore there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to award to me on that day. I mean, think about this. Remember those friends of Paul that, that weren't with him in that arraignment? Perhaps out of fear? Paul thinks about his friends who had deserted him and he gives them up, he, he, he lifts them up to that same judge. He says, may it not be counted against them. That kind of language, when he says, may it not be counted against them, is the kind of petition that you give to a judge. And so he's, he's giving over even the momentary desertion of his friends to, to, to God, his king, to Jesus Christ, his judge. You know, he, he knows that his trial belongs to this same judge. And in fact, he's not praying here. Do you see anywhere in this, in this prayer where he says, please pray that Nero might let me off. Please pray that I might be considered innocent. Well, that's, that's not his prayer, is that this, some human judge might pronounce some kind of judgment over him. He, he trusts actually the outcome of this court case to a impartial judge, to a righteous judge, to the King and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider for a moment, this judge is impartial, Jesus. He's impartial. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be rushed or coerced. He cannot be tempted to take something under the table. He has no different eye or vision for those who are wealthy than for those who are poor. A number of years ago, I sat in a, in a courtroom in India with a friend, and the room was full of different people. And they're all trying to get the attention of the judge. Judge, look at me, look at me, listen to my case. And into that courtroom, a very poor village woman walked in. And, and she walked in and she came right to the front of where the judge was sitting. And she started to petition her case. And the judge, at one point, looked down at her and said, get her out of my face, I don't want to smell her. That judge was partial to those who were wealthy and had means and, and looked down on those who were poor. This judge, however, to whom Paul makes his petition, sees all people the same, employer and employee, the sheikh or the king and the slave, every single nation, every single color is treated equally before this righteous judge. In the United Arab Emirates, every passport has a currency. Different passports are paid differently depending on what nation you're from for the same exact job. There are preferred passports, but not before this righteous judge. He sees all people and he will judge them rightly. Reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four. Uh, 
We see there Moses writes, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 37, verse 28 declares, the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his faithful ones. Beloved, listen up. He, he sees every single time that you've been slandered or mistreated or misunderstood or gossiped about for the sake of the gospel. He sees and he cares for all of us as we are faithful to him. If you're a faithful Christian who preaches the gospel, shares the gospel with somebody from your work or in your neighborhood, people might look at you strange, speak about you strangely. Reminds me of the Domingo family back in Dubai. Isa was faithful to be a Christian in her workplace at around Ramadan time. And a few weeks later, she didn't get the promotion that she had requested. And the reason, the subtext was, she was too Christian. Friend, I know that some of you will be faithful in the near future to speak about the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ or that he died and that he rose from the dead and other people will think about you differently. They will consider you weird, strange. You might lose a contract. You might lose a promotion. You might be gossiped about or slandered about. And it is those kinds of things that we bring or take or lay before the righteous judge, Jesus, for he sees all things. He sees every injustice that you and I have experienced. But at the same time, right, he sees every injustice that you and I have performed. He sees everything that we have seen or everything that we have spoken, everything that we have desired inwardly that's actually a breaking of his will. And he will judge every single human being with equity and perfect holiness. And it is before this righteous judge that but Paul is going to present his case and to this righteous judge that he commits himself. Are you ready to meet this judge? For this judge is not like any human judge that you and I can conceive of. He knows exactly who we are, what we have done, what we will do. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of who we are, what we've done. Do not think that because you sit here in a room with other Christians or because you might go to a Christian university or because you, you, you've been raised in and around Christianly things that you are gonna be okay on that day. For Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew chapter seven that on that day of judgment, many will come to me. How many? Many will come to me and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And it says that Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me. Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It is on this judgment or about this judgment that Jesus Christ himself speaks in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself describes what this judgment day is gonna be like. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Look down at verse 41. He will then say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 concludes in this, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Are you ready to meet this judge? If you have not repented of your sin, if you've not turned and entrusted your entire body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ, then this judgment awaits for you. I mean, as sure as the sun is hot in Dubai, and it's very hot, and as soon as the moon rises at night, it is certain that you, your death will come, and after that death, judgment. But you know, it doesn't have to be that way. For if you turn to the Lord Jesus and trust him and cast on him your griefs and your fears and your shame and your sin and your, you give him your life, he gives you his life forever. So turn to him today and trust him with your, with your life and he will save you on that day of judgment. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have nothing to fear on that day of judgment, right? You, looking through death to that day of judgment, you will receive the same crown of righteousness that Paul himself talked about. He even says that here in 2 Timothy chapter four. He says, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, is gonna judge to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. And so if you're a Christian today, you have absolutely no fear on that day. For on that day, God, the king, will look upon you and not see your sin or your shame or your guilt. He will see the righteousness and the goodness of the Lord Jesus and he will, you will be justified on that day because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on your behalf. You will, he will say to you, come, receive the kingdom, live life with me forever. Now friends, because Jesus is the judge, because he's the righteous judge, an impartial judge, you can trust him then with any kind of injustice, any kind of wrongdoing, any kind of evil. There, there is no evildoer who gets away with it, right? There's, there's no murderer, no rapist, no liar, no gossiper who like gets off free for all will stand before him on that day and receive what is their due. We actually see an, a hint of that here in this passage. Second Timothy in chapter four, verse 14, Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Alexander the coppersmith did Paul great harm. He was against the gospel ministry. He was a danger to the church. That's why Paul writes to Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy and says, watch out for him. And yet even, even Alexander the coppersmith, this evil man who's done evil and is dangerous to the church, Paul the apostle is not bitter. He's not grumbling and venomous and vengeful. But actually, he entrusts Alexander the coppersmith's evil to the righteous judge. And he commits and trusts that the harm that Alexander the coppersmith represents or has already accomplished to this righteous judge. For Paul knows that there's nobody who escapes that day. And so he's able to trust God even with the evil of Alexander the coppersmith. And so Paul warns against him by name and then he commits Alexander to the judgment of Jesus Christ. 
And so here in 2 Timothy, Paul knows he's about to die. He knows that this grief is real and yet he doesn't fear it because he can see through death, beyond death, to that moment when he will receive the righteous justice of God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Now, I do want to say that Paul, because he can see this, because he knows what's gonna happen to him after death, it actually transforms the way that he's able to live now. And even in this passage, we see several hints of what a godly man loves in his final moments. Now, we recognize that these weren't just his final moments. The things that that I'm gonna talk about here, he loved his whole life. He was committed to them for his whole life in ministry. And yet we ourselves as Christians, we also can embrace and love these things. And so in a word, what does somebody who's gonna die, what do they love? What should characterize their life? What should characterize your life even now as you're sitting here? What are the things that should animate us or get us excited about in life? Well, we can see five things kind of sprinkled or scattered through this passage. What do Christians love? Well, verse eight, we already saw that they love the appearing They long for the appearing of of Jesus Christ. There at the end of verse eight, he says, you know, that righteous judge is gonna give or award his righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. Well, do you love the appearing of Jesus? Are you waiting for, expecting for the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because he is coming back. And Christians for 2,000 years have longed for and expected and prayed, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, return. Bring this justice for which we wait. The Apostle Paul loved the appearing of Jesus and so do all, so do all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second thing we see here that, that Christians love, the thing, things that get us animated. We love God's people. We love other Christians. Did you guys notice all those names in chapter four? Although that, that scattering of different names, some of them we know nothing about, some of them we actually know a bit of history about. Actually, just look there. Kind of in the middle of verse 10, he talks about Crescens and Titus and Luke and Mark in verse 12, Tychicus. And look down at verse 19. He says, greet Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila, that power couple who hosted so many churches in their home and, and the household of Onesiphorus and Erastus and Trophimus and Miletus and Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. These are all real people in real time space history. They they aren't made up or mythological. They all love the Lord Jesus Christ and eventually they all died and they have been with Jesus for these last 2,000 years worshiping him and and fellowshipping or or whatever people do in between the time when they die and and their bodily resurrection. They knew the Lord Jesus and they loved him I mean, I just love how good it is, how good it is to have other brothers and sisters. You know, Paul the Apostle, just imagine, he's in prison. What does he most want to know about? He wants to know about other Christians. He wants to encourage them in the faith. He wants them to continue to faithfully love God and to be obedient to God. He names them because he knows them and he knows them because he loves them because they're in his heart. I just wonder, on, on your, on your, in your dying weeks, are you gonna be asking about the, the spiritual progress or the spiritual health of other Christians that you've known that God has given you to faithfully be in ministry with or in, in communion with? That's what Paul was wondering about. Greet these people and these people greet you and, and how are these people doing? How are those people doing? Because he loved them. He, he loved other Christians. 
And his entire life was, was circling or absorbed with how can I build other people up in the faith? Now, in these, in these names that we see, we, we, again, like I said, some we know, some we don't know. And I'm just always so encouraged to think about faithful men and women for 2,000 years, some names we know, famous people. You know, the, the William Careys who go to India or the Samuel Zwemers who go to the Arabian Peninsula to faithfully preach the gospel, or some of you. But you know, there are so many names, not thousands, not tens of thousands, hundreds, millions of names of brothers and sisters that you and I share this, this, this common faith with about which we don't know anything except that they were faithful. And on that day, they received the crown of righteousness. Christians, we love other Christians. And in a, in a little bit, when we, when we take communion together, we remember that we have a communion one with each other because of what God has done for us uh, through Jesus Christ. You know, what, what do Christians love? Look, uh, look down at verse 13. Verse 13, Paul writes, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books above all the parchments. Paul there in prison, what's he want? He wants a coat or cloak because it's cold. And he wants the books because he wants to continue to read and to study. And he wants the parchment so that he can maybe perhaps continue to write. Paul continues to want to study and to think thoughts after God by reading in the word. And I just want to say, friends, the word of God is life to us. This, this book is alive, and we want to sing it and chant it and memorize it. We want to hear it preach. We want to read it to each other and have others read it to us because this word will transform you if you give yourself to it. Paul the apostle, even in his waning moments, gives himself to the word because he loves the word. And so he loves the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and he loves other Christians and he loves the word. And yet there's one thing here I wanna talk about in a second that's kind of negative. It's kind of a negative thing. I, I, I skipped over one of those names. Did you see the name that I skipped over? Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. Verse 10. For Demas, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica in love with this present world. Demas used to be a faithful follower of Christ. Demas used to be a co-worker, a colleague of the Apostle Paul. We read about in the, in the book of Philemon. Demas may have even been a leader or an elder in the church of Colossae. Demas now has abandoned Paul, abandoned the faith because he loves the world. The, the desire of the eyes and the desire of the, the flesh and the boastful pride of life has, has overcome him and the love of the Father is not in him. Demas, Placerita, you guys, you know people like Demas who used to be faithful Christians, who used to talk about how they loved God and yet now over the course of weeks or months or years, they've cooled. They don't love him anymore. Oh my friends, the world is alluring and deceiving. And it whispers to you, oh, it's okay. You don't have to care about Jesus that much. And many, many there are, like Demas. What do Christians love? Christians don't love the world. What do Christians love? Lastly, there's one other thing I want you to see that Christians love here from this passage. 
You see it down in verse 17 because Paul's eyes were fixed. They were fixed on the righteous judge. They were fixed on, on the gospel. He says there, verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Why? Why did the Lord stand by and strengthen Paul? Was it so that he could uh, get released from prison? Because he's in prison, right? It would be a really great thing for the Lord to come and strengthen him toward freedom. But that's not, that's not what he talks about here. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Why? So that through me, the message of the gospel might be fully proclaimed. That the Gentiles might hear it. In other words, even while he's in prison and even while he's accused, his heart, his central aim, his central ambition is the gospel. That the message of the gospel might go out. The Apostle Paul is, does not care about his reputation in, in the court system. He, he doesn't care about his outcome. Will he, will he get, get his freedom again? The central thing that he cares about, that he, that he says, this is why the Lord Jesus has strengthened me, is so that the gospel can be preached and proclaimed. He has one heart, one ambition, one goal, that this message might go out. And this is what Christians for 2,000 years have loved. We love the gospel. We love the gospel. We want more and more people to hear it, to turn from their sins and to trust in, in God and to experience the grace of forgiveness. Now my friends, we, my wife and I, we get to do this in, in Dubai because there are so many people and they've never heard the gospel and they say, why have you come to Dubai? And they, the answer they expect is, oh, I came to work for this company and for my career or maybe to go check out the Burj Khalifa, the, the tallest tower. I mean, these are things that they expect. They don't expect us to say, oh, I'm here to work with the church and to share with people how they can have forgiveness of sins. And people are, oh, really? What do you mean? Most of them have never heard it before. And so we get the opportunity to speak to people about the grace of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now friend, do you want a, a life without regret? Do you want a death without fear? Then join the apostle Paul. And when you look at death, don't, don't look at death itself, look through death, beyond death, at, the, at that righteous judgment of Jesus Christ when he's gonna award to you the crown of righteousness. And because you know that you will be accepted and embraced by the Father because of the Son, that means that today, today, March, chapter, or March 3rd, you, you can look at your brothers and sisters in the room here and love them deeply. That means that today, you can be faithful to speak and to share the gospel with people who don't know it, who maybe don't understand it, or don't understand its implications. That means today, you can continue to give yourself to this book, to this word, and study, and to know God, and to love God. You are free from the fear of death, because you know in whose hands your life belongs. You know that you do not belong to yourself, that you belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I come to you on behalf uh, or by your Spirit and, and through your Son, Jesus, and I praise you and I thank you for the grace that you have shown me and these many brothers and sisters through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that, you that we today can have no fear of death because of what comes after death, that is the judgment. And we know that on that day, you will award to us the righteousness of your son, Jesus. Oh, thank you, gracious God. I pray, Lord, would you free 
my brothers and my sisters here, from the fear of death and all the things that we do to dull the grief of death, help us, Lord, to see beyond death to the, to, to, to the glorious resurrection that we will experience with Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, that we today can experience life with you in and through your son, Jesus, whose name I pray, amen.